I'm Chris Stuchko, co-host of the Ninth Grade Experience Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Monty Schultz. We're focused on his awesome novel, Metropolis, as well as writing advice, a cool conference, and a little bit about his father, Charles M. Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts characters like Snoopy and Charlie Brown and Linus and such. You're going to love this interview. You're going to love this talk. There's so much to learn here, and uh, there's just so much to love about it. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that for me? As well as, you know, it'd be neat if you reached out to somebody who you know has never listened to Teaching Learning Leading K-12 and said, hey, have I got the podcast for you. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. The intro and outro were created and performed by Brian K. Buffington. You can find more about Brian at briankbuffington.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for his newsletter. Thanks, Brian. Cool, huh? It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show. With lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Stimuletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dot Stimuletto. Monty Schultz has received his M.A. in American Studies from University of California, Santa Barbara. He published his first novel, Down by the River, in 1990 and spent the next 12 years writing a novel about the jazz age. Monty is endlessly curious and well-versed in world history and theology. He is fascinated by the style and use of innovative language and can be caught engaging in provocative, philosophical conversations about big, far-reaching, and imaginative ideas and worldly perspectives. His father is the late cartoonist Charles M. Schultz. He lives in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, today, our focus is going to be on his book, Metropolis. Here's a little bit about his, his novel, Metropolis. Regency College senior Julian Bream, uneventful student life, is derailed when he falls for Nina Rinaldi a beautiful young revolutionary engaged in political activism against the authoritarian regime that rules the country and wages a deceitful, distracting war. Julian's love for, and moral alliance to, Nina eventually leads him into a vast undercity beneath the metropolis, then east by train and into the war zone itself, where mortal danger in that expanding cemetery of millions threatens Julian's life. What he witnesses will alter how he perceives the Republic and ultimately his fate within it. Like I said, our focus today is on Monty, his writing, and his novel, Metropolis. Monty, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Well, it's cool to have you on here. I love your book. It's got a beautiful cover. We're going to get to that in just a second. Um, but uh, before we go there, I, I, and I've also got to point out that I can't let it slide because we have talked briefly about this, but you're, you're, Charles, you're, you're Charles M. Schultz's son, and he created Peanuts. So uh, um, that, what a neat legacy. Yeah, he uh, he was one of my heroes. We were really close. We would, before he died, we were still talking. We we're talking two or three, four times a day, a week about books. And he told me once that he he was waiting for me to grow up and get old enough that we could talk about books and we could share books. And so I got to where when I was sharing books with him, uh, particularly the author Cormac McCarthy, uh, then he knew I'd arrived as a uh, as a reader and a and a, and a literary companion for him. 
So uh, he liked what I wrote. He liked long form that I was able to do. He couldn't do it. If he had to write books where they had to do a paragraph of something, it was painful for him because I just can't figure out enough to say because he was used to writing in those four panels, right? So uh, it was kind of funny. But he did push me into writing. He pushed me and he offered me Carl Sandburg, Joan Didion, John Steinbeck, and particularly Thomas Wolfe. He liked those big, expansive, lyrical passages in these books. So uh, dad was uh, really instrumental in pushing me toward writing what I do now. That's awesome. That's very cool. And just a note, I can only imagine after uh, years of uh, making the little short panels and, and getting your point across in as few words as possible, that that would make it difficult. So. It was painful for him, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's something else. Well, I just got to say it, uh, that uh, you know, my house is filled with plenty of uh, Snoopy and Peanuts and, and all, all the group and, uh, and especially the collection of books I have. So uh, um, just uh, uh, it's, it's neat to... Uh, talk to you and also hear a little bit about uh, the stuff that he talked to you about as his son. So neat stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things that uh, I got to ask you is you kind of talked about what inspired you to write your own stories as uh, your father talking with you, but can you go into a little more detail as, cause you've chose something about the jazz age. You chose something about a kind of a fictional place and, uh, and so forth and so on. What, what just kind of hits you to, I mean, where do you get your ideas from? Well, okay, so my first novel, Down by the River, was my attempt to publish a book, right? And, it, and I was in graduate school, and during graduate school, I wrote, uh, well, I used to read, like, supermarket paperback slasher novels or books like that, you know, and uh, just aside from the academic work. And so I learned how to pace and tell a story. So I wrote uh, 90 pages of scenes of people getting killed, and then I couldn't figure out what else was going to happen with the book, so I went back to writing my master's thesis on Small Town America, and then I, I looked at those files on my computer one afternoon, and I thought, wow, because my, my memory of them was not very good. <laughs> I didn't think they were good at all. Then I read it and thought, oh, they're actually really good. I got an idea. Rather than making a slasher novel, I'll make it a mystery of who's killing these people, these kids. And I was, so essentially what I did is I grafted a small-town novel onto this novel of people getting killed and had down by the river, and I sold it right away. After that, though, I wanted to write a literary novel, and because that's what I'd been reading in graduate school. So I got the idea of writing my attempt at the Great American Novel. And the Great American Novel is defined in the 20s in an essay on Thomas Wolfe was to write a book that encompassed encompass the most about American society. So when we hear that the Gatsby is a great American novel or more recently John Franzen's Freedom, they can't be because they don't, the picture of America isn't big enough. So I created a novel where we have one with three characters whose stories are separate and occurring simultaneously in different locations. One on the middle border, which was the Midwest, they call it the middle border, another set in East Texas and another in a city somewhere and uh, stitched them together as one big novel. And I chose the time period of the 20s because two reasons. One, that's the age of my dad being young and my mom being young. And also then the period of my favorite writers, you know, Faulkner and Fitzgerald and Sandberg and Ring Lardner and John Dos Passos. So uh, it was, and it took I don't know, 12 years to write that book. Uh, so, but I love it. It's, it reads really well now. I look at it and, uh, I'm impressed. It just, it's just nobody reviewed it or anything. It was too bad because uh, I think it would have won the awards that year. It's really, I, I told everybody, I, look, I don't care what anybody says. You read it and tell me it was not the best book that came out in America in 2016. But whatever, it vanished into the ether. But it's still a great book. 
Very cool. Sorry that it, that you didn't get the reviews that you needed, but the, I know, I know. <laughs> that's awesome. The, uh, so it's cool when you talk about the, the reason why you placed it during the, you know, when they were, uh, when they were young, which is, uh, that's kind of neat too. Cause you, you learn about the, as you're visiting those time frames to, to put your characters in. I like that. Well, there's families, there's family stuff in there. There's quotes from dad. I did an interview with him. Uh, yeah, there are four first person vignettes through the book and those are essentially from interviews with my dad and my dad's cousin. So my dad's voices in there verbatim. They're letters on my mom's side of the family from her father, from her mother, from cousins and aunts and uncles. They're in there verbatim. So it's also sort of family biography uh, here and there. That's cool. That's that is really cool. Hey, uh, what a what a neat thing to. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, what a neat tool. Um, I like that a lot. That, so. I, I got to ask you, because this is, this is kind of neat, because you're talking about this, um, you've mentioned these different writers that your dad liked, and you mentioned ones that um, possibly had an influence on you. Is there one particular writer that really just influenced, you know, just said to you, this is what I like, I, uh, this, this is my, you know, this, this person is great. The, the language of Carl Sandburg. The poetry of Carl Sandburg, uh, the cadence in his sentences, um, him writing about America, very clear writing. And, of course, he's a poet. Um, so my style comes from him. And so if I were on, you know, this whole thing, you're on Desert Island, have one book, what would it be? It would be Complete Poems by Carl Sandburg. Nice. Um, that said, then afterward, uh, to translate into fiction, well, I had... Uh, of course, I wanted to write like Thomas Wolfe, which is impossible, right? He was uh, stylistically the greatest writer of his generation. And Hemingway uh, acknowledged that. And Dos Passos did. He was the one. He was number one. But uh, I can't write like Thomas Wolfe. So when I was in graduate school, I discovered through a graduate seminar, Carson McCullers. And when I read her novel, The Member of the Wedding, it was lyrical but lighter than, than Thomas Wolfe. And I realized that that was a good model for me the lyrical prose of Carson McCullers. And then, of course, later I've, I read uh, Truman Capote, who was very similar in the same way, and I love those writers. So they were really easily the most uh, influential on my writing stylistically. Very cool, very cool. I, so one of the things I got to – I've heard – I've read something that you say, have said before, which is um, best piece of advice for writers is to read and read widely. Can you talk about how this helps and what other stuff you got that goes with that? Yeah, well, uh, if you if you read commercial fiction, you learn how to pace and tell a story. Get on with the story. Get on with the story. Get on with the story. Uh, so I read probably more commercial fiction than literary fiction. However, literary fiction teaches the importance of language, okay, word choices, style, poetry, and language, uh, and then interior uh, drama, philosophy. Put philosophy in. Um, have musings on uh, on life, what it means. You don't find that in in, in contemporary, f in, in popular fiction so much. Like I love Lee Child's uh, Jack Reacher novels. I love them. I read I read all of them. I've read all but two. I save them now for writing on the airplane back and forth from Hawaii. And uh, so I like I like his. But on the other hand, we don't really get a lot of interior philosophical musings from Jack Reacher. And we don't probably want him in that book. Um, a writer I really admire now because I've started doing both is, uh, is the late Roberto Bolaño, a Chilean writer. And so he has lyrical writing and he has things happen. To me, that's another downside of a lot of literary writers. They don't seem to be obligated to have anything happen in the book. 
Okay, it's just interior interior drama and a lot of really beautiful language, but nothing really happening. So what I try to do, particularly in Metropolis, is fuse the two, right? Philosophical musings, lyrical language, but have stuff happen all the time, which sometimes means having people get killed. Okay, so uh, so nice. that's kind of uh, that's but that anyway. So writers, friends of mine who are literary writers, don't read commercial fiction. They said, "Why should they?" Go, they one, in fact, one asked me, "Why do you, we don't understand why you read Stephen King and John Grisham and those people?" I go, "What? I read them because I learn how to tell a story." And uh, and then the literary and then the uh, commercial writers I know writing commercial fiction don't read literary fiction at all. They, they think, yeah, I don't know. I just don't really like it. You know, a friend of mine was reading, uh, I had her read The Sheltering Sky, and she says, I don't know. I didn't really get into it. What? He's, Paul Bowles is a great writer. So, but but it, it just, it allows you to really see the marketplace as well, right? I read Twilight. I read Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, and I also read the Paul, Paul Bowles. I read Isabel Allende. Uh, Joan Didion, one of my favorite writers, I met her a couple times. Uh, she signed she signed my my copy of Solitude Towards Bethlehem and the White Album. Um, so I read uh, I just read a lot of things. It it just informs my writing like like streams flowing into a river, right? I glean something from all of them. Sometimes it's like what not to do, but a lot of times it's just like tell a story, tell a story, and tell it well, and and be poetic. Okay, so that's why that's why you, re- you just you just got to read widely you really do even if you don't like the book you know that's cool that's cool and as a note yeah that is a that is a nice surprise to know that uh, that uh, you read and like the jack reacher novels because that's one i try i try to stay up with them and I, i've only missed one which is back towards the beginning i gotta i gotta go find that one so otherwise i'm up to date <laughs> and <laughs> i love those stories so uh, you know just it's fast-paced and uh, you know you want uh, you know it's one of those things where Jack is going to uh, get involved in whatever the trouble is, and he's going to make the trouble pay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, why not, right? Why not? Right. And I read Sanford's novels, too. I like all the Prey novels. I've read all of them. Very I love cool. Them. Uh, Stephen King, I've read all his books. Excellent. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I like those writers. Very cool. This is this is neat. I did not expect to have that part of the conversation with you either. That's that's very cool because uh, you know, I've, I've been reading a little more of the modern Stephen King um, although I've read some of his past, and uh, which is really cool, I, those I, I've been ruined by the movies. I think before. <laughs> 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 yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But the uh, um, that's cool. I've read some of the Prey books too, so that's that's neat that you also are delving into those. I, I think that I mean that you like those as well. That's awesome. Page turners. Yeah, I have to have page turners. So I read two or three books at once, and uh, the uh, I'll read a literary novel, then I watch maybe an hour of one of the mini series, whatever I'm watching, you know, Westworld or whatever, and then I uh, and then before I go to bed, I read the page turner. Because uh, I'll get a little drowsy, so the page turner makes me, it's easier to follow than a literary novel, you know, at the midnight or something. So uh, I schedule it like that. But it's hard to find the page turners. So uh, the literary, literary novels are easier to find, I, I, I discovered. That's wild. That's, uh, and uh, I totally understand what you're talking about. Because you, you read those at late at night, the, the page turners are going to be good. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's <yeah>. nice. <laughs> I love it. But, yeah, you know, one of the things I got to ask you is, uh, um, so, Something that I read that your father said was only amateurs get writer's block. Professionals can't afford it. And what's funny is you hear this a lot in, in different uh, uh, from writers and stuff like this about whether they believe writer's block really exists or not. Can you talk about just what your father was talking about and, uh, and kind of go from there what you think? Yeah, he, well, that quote he told me over the phone one afternoon. We were talking about it. And, uh, well, 
so of course he couldn't have writer's block because he had to have six dailies in a Sunday and every week. Wow. So he just would force it to happen. And I realized that it applies to fiction in that you start with a blank page and you're thinking, Oh, I'm blocked. I can't think of anything. Sure. You can, it just might not be that good. Okay. But you can't have a blank page. So at the writer's conference, when I'm speaking or teaching my class, I tell, I tell them, okay, writer's block is one of two things. It's either fear of writing something bad or just being lazy. Okay. Just being lazy. You know, you can, if you write a page of anything, you're going to find, even if you find one sentence on there, that's good. That's usable. An idea that's usable. That's better than a blank page. You can't, you hear writers say, oh, I was blocked for six months. Oh, come on. Dad couldn't be blocked for six months. You tell me your creativity is more important than his? Are you joking? <laughs> what? He could never be blocked. So he just did it. And so it's so funny because some people say, yeah, you know, some of the strips are more are funnier than others. Okay, wow, that's a surprise, right? <laughs> funnier than others. One meal is better than another. Okay, is that where is that not true in life, right? right. So, but but he didn't have time to worry about. He had to move on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. And come up with the ideas. Just come up with the ideas. And if you're forced to do that, you will. Columnists, the same thing, right? A, col- a columnist has to come up with a column and it has to be in the newspaper. I also, some of these writers who tie themselves to yearly contracts have to come up with something. Right? I don't know why any writer would do that, but some of them do. Um, Sue Grafton was obligated contractually to, to publish one of those alphabet mystery novels once a year. So they come up with it. They force their way through. They don't get blocked. Um, I don't, and I'm not counting writers who are just sitting around waiting for an idea because they just, they're not going to write until they have something they really want to write. That to me is not really being, it's not writer's block. Writer's block are the people who really want to write, really want to write, but it's just, I was blocked. Okay, whatever. Just write, <laughs> you know, just write something. Okay. And then you won't be blocked anymore. Maybe it's no good. Maybe it's no good. But out of that horrible page you wrote, there's going to be something worth keeping. So that's how I see writer's block. That's cool. I, I appreciate you talking about that. Uh, and I, and I love the, the thought that, yeah, someone who's having to produce something for all those papers and, and everything else, that's, they really don't have time to take a, really? It's yeah, I got to go. It's going to happen whether I like it or not. So I know, right. It's going to be good or not, but it's going to be there. All right. Nice. So I, I got to ask you, cause you just re- referenced it also. Um, so in 2010, you purchased the Santa Barbara writers convention. Um, is that still going to happen? Cause I, I noticed that it kind of, um, stopped around co- the beginning of COVID, and uh, I was wondering if it's going to. COVID killed it for uh, I think three years. Well, yeah, we're going to do it this June. We talked about it, talked to the director of it, and we we decided, yeah, okay, it'll be, you know, unless something else comes up, you know, some massively deadly version of COVID, it will it will happen. Um, we it was really it was doubtful. We discussed it last January. Uh, should we do it? And we, of course, by June, everything was kind of okay. Things were opening up, but we, we needed to know in January. We had need to make the call and you can't tell the future. So we decided it was more prudent to just to postpone it again. So we did. And now this June, it will happen. Excellent. So, uh, yeah. And, now, one of the things we talk about Metropolis, which is what I've been wanting to do for a couple of years. Huh. Yeah. Is it, it, so, so I got to ask you this because one of the things that's really cool, cause we're going to get to Metropolis in just a second. And, and, and one of the things I got to ask you is, uh, so it's, one of the things that's really cool is you have this whole little thing about having agents there that people can yeah. pitch their stories to. Can you just talk right. about that for a second? Yeah. So, uh, the agents are kind of mean. 
<laughs> that's what I actually. That's what I've heard. So I was wondering. Unfortunately, I have to say some of them are nice, but some of them are not. They're so pompous because they know the writers. Please, please take my book. Please take my book. So uh, what people do is they book appointments with them, and it's like we call it like a speed dating. You know, they go through the agents. They they have I think like five minutes or ten minutes to give their pitch, and that's it. And then the agent just goes to lunch or something. I don't know. They take the next person. Um, we do that, but it's a good draw for people. And I think they, uh, I believe they actually have to pay to see the agent, which seems kind of silly, but still they do. Um, and, uh, but at the conference, they also, we also have panels where there'll be editors on the panel and uh, they're just kind of the agents. Um, the, the person I brought the conference from, well, the first, the founders of the conference were Barnaby and Mary Conrad. And Mary said one time, she was, oh, those agents, those horrible people. She, was, <laughs> she used to have a cocktail party and she never invited the agents. She was, those people are horrible. <laughs> wow. so, uh, but, but it's a good part of the conference and it's an important part and it's a draw for people. So uh, we appreciate that. Absolutely. That's cool. So, so something you said, it sounded like you teach at it. Do you, so do you, teach a specific type of class or yeah, something? Yeah, I teach a class on writing and uh, voice and style. And uh, so what I do in my class is um, I have people read maybe a, two or three pages, two pages, something of their piece, whether it's a short story, part of a novel, whatever. And then we talk about the voice. We talk about, is it interesting? What, how could you make it better? So even if I'll say to somebody, yeah, I don't, this, this is not working stylistically, right? I'll say, but this sentence in here is really good this is the level you're aiming for. That is really clever. So we don't talk, I don't allow my, my students there to talk about the plot or the story or the characters. Well, this story is not, no, 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 we're not talking about that. That's for all the other workshops. Okay. We're just talking about the voice. How does it strike you? And that's what, that's what I teach. Cause that's what interests me the most. Um, so, and by the way, I, I really, I can't hear stuff read loud. So I have to, I tell them, okay, you got to give me a copy to read along. Okay. And, uh, and sometimes I'll read it. If I, if I, if the person starts reading and they're reading really so Bob went to work that day, I'm like, okay, 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 wait, I'm going to read it. I'll read it. Okay. Cause we got to move it along here. So, uh, I'm pretty good at cold reading. So, uh, I like the workshop sort of. I was forced to teach it after I bought the conference. I said, do I have to do it? Yes, you have to. That's funny. (laughs) Don't make me. (laughs) Yeah, please. Nice. That's cool. That's, that's neat that you, you have, you bought the conference and you run it and you teach at it. And then, and it's cool that it's coming back. So uh, excellent stuff. Well, what I also do, by the way, in my workshop is I, I bring in stacks of books and I read passages from them so they can see really interesting writing. So nice. I'm reading from Dennis Johnson. I'm reading from uh, uh, James Gould Cousins and James Jones and uh, or Isabel Allende or, or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Cormac McCarthy. Um, and uh, so they can see the difference. And I'm saying, so I'll tell the reader, okay, so you see this. Now, how close is what this person just read to this type of writing? Yeah, well, I know if they, they reach that level. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Okay, because your competition, I said, are not your students in the class. Your competition are these writers in these books I brought in. That's awesome. Something to aim for. What a great learning opportunity. So cool. So good stuff. So wish the best with that. I, I got to uh, let's kind of start shifting towards your novel now. Um, I read in your bio that you've written other novels and that one took 12 years. Um, and with Metropolis, you put it down for about 15 years. What kept you from putting it down and never picking it up again? Um, so, yeah, I started it. I wrote like 50 pages in 2003 up through that scene where Julian is having, remembering having dinner with his father in a cafe downtown. Right. So I think it's about page 50 or something like that. And, uh, the problem with the book was twofold. One, I couldn't figure out how Julian was able to study the Greeks and the Romans in a fictional Republic 
I didn't get that. And then nor could I figure out the geography of the book. Like where is like where is San Etienne Shores and where is uh, this war taking place and and what is this metropolis? And uh, so in the spring of 2019, uh, to follow Ray Bradbury's uh, uh, statement, uh, why is it? Because I say it so. Nice. <laughs> they, he, they do study that Julian does study the Romans and the Greeks. And they did exist um, in in his in this uh, in the universe of his. Uh, of Republic. And then I realized that what makes sense is that the Republic is what we know as France. I had a friend who I explained the whole book to and told me it's as though history bifurcated 1500 years ago. And we were, and we got this. So the metropolis is what roughly what Paris is. Um, the Holy river Livorno would be the Seine. The hinterlands, the Eastern provinces would be Germany, Eastern Europe, and then going into Russia, but they're not because the world is different. The Southern Sea, you here mentioned, that is, is the Mediterranean, okay? And so there's this mix of cultures, and it's just, it's just different, but it's like us, right? It's like us, but it's not us. So once I figure that out, then I'm still working on another novel uh, in the summer of 2019, but it wasn't moving along very well. And then in August, I went back to Metropolis. I looked at that scene with the father, and then I started writing forward. And I wrote the whole thing after that in nine months by an interesting schedule where I had to write, never mind writer's block, I had to write one page every morning, at least one page every morning before I ate or drank anything. Okay. Nice, you, nice. I would get so hungry. I'm at the end of the bottom of the page or halfway down and, and visions of a ham sandwich are floating <laughs> in my, my mind. It's like, you got to finish, 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 finish. And then later on, uh, now I'm free the rest of the day to write whatever I want to get two pages, three pages, another one day I wrote six pages, but I, in nine months I only missed three mornings and that's when I was out of town. So I wrote Thanksgiving morning, Christmas morning, new year's, you know, I just, I got that page done. I got the whole book done. And, uh, so I wrote part of it when I'm in Hawaii, where I am right now. And then, uh, and then I went back to Santa Barbara and wrote the rest of it. Um, so that was, a, but that was the idea. It was, it was understanding the nature of the book. It's like the muses told me, look, okay, dude, it's just, it's like France. Okay. That's cool. And of course he can study the Greeks and the Romans. And he mentions James Joyce uh, when he's talking to Lewis right from the start, when he first meets him and I realized, okay, yeah. In his class, I think it was called impressionistic literature. He had something that, that quote. So uh, then it all became clear to me. It all was simple, the whole thing. And, and then and then I I made, I literally, everyone overused the literary, but I literally made the whole thing up as I was writing it. I had no outline and no plot. The only thing I knew was where it ended, right? Because the beginning, right, with the airships. I knew it was going to end there. Well, except for the epilogue. And I, and, I understood the ep, and I understood the epilogue, too, waiting in the water at the shore. I had that in, the rest of it I literally made up. I didn't know it was going to be 668 pages. I really thought it'd be about 400 pages, maybe 350, 400. It just was longer, you know? Nice. So, yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Cause that's, you know, that, that's a huge thing that everybody wants to know today is uh, whether you outline or you don't outline and you just come right out there and say, yep, oh, well, except for these things. No, <laughs> so. I never outline. I'm too lazy. I, I can't <laughs> believe I hear people like write long biographical sketches of their characters. My first thought is why bother? Why would you do that? Uh, I keep every, I just retain everything in my head, the plot, everything in my head. And, and Metropolis is, is, well, since you're ready, you know, it's really complicated plot wise. And when I look back over the book in proofing it, and by the way, proofreading, I had to read it four times in seven weeks, okay, because nice. I kept having an extension so I could read it again, read it again, catch more mistakes, more mistakes. Uh, but I, I looked over and I see a lot of connections that I didn't see when I wrote the book. It's, uh, it's kind of funny. It's weird to say, but 
for me, it's a better book on rereading than it was when I read, wrote or read it the first time. I just see a lot of things I, I really like it. It's clever. I, I, see, I read it all. I look at it all the time. Just a scene here and there, a page here and there. I think this is a really clever book. That's I really cool. Like it. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, it. that's an awesome book. And that's, that's neat to know, though, that in, in uh, how many weeks did you read it over? In six, seven times? Yes, yeah, so I read at one point. I read it in. Okay, so what happened was we had a due date. And uh, so I read the thing. And then and then my book designer, Justin, uh, at Fanographics told me, well, uh, you, it looks like you have a, uh, it'll be, I said, how much time? He's well, a week or 10 days ago. So I can read it again. He goes, what? Yeah, I can read it again. I guess you can. So I read it in six days. Nice. And then I said, and then I said, so when do we have to give it? And he goes, well, uh, we still have another maybe few days. How many days? He goes, well, it could be another week. So I read it again and I read it again one time. So in those four times, three times I read it in six days and one time I read it in five days. Wow. And then to show what proofing is like, I got the book. And you see, it's beautiful. I open it up, and in five minutes, I found a mistake. Oh, no, 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 no. So uh, I got to sell enough copies to get a second printing because I have I have a few mistakes to fix. So they're not really one is a typo, but the others are like things I should have done. Gotcha. Because like, like, I was going to say yeah. nothing. Nothing stood out to me, so I, I can tell you that I'm not the. Uh, I'm not looking for mistakes either. But at the same time, I didn't randomly find something. So um, thank you. So that's cool. So. Uh, <laughs> Good yeah. stuff. I, you know, I gotta, I gotta tell you this because you know one of the things that strikes you right off the bat is that the cover's beautiful. Can you, can yeah. you talk yeah. about that cover for just a minute? Sure. The painting is by Angela Lizon from the. Uh, she lives in the in Bristol in the UK, and uh, Laura Hannifin, who designs book covers for big publishers, uh, uh, was a friend of a friend of mine in Santa Barbara. So my friend hooked me up with the Laura. And uh, we talked about a cover. I showed her examples of things I thought might be good. And so she collected a whole bunch of, of our artwork possibilities. And one of the possibilities was this cover that Angela had. And I, I remember liking it, but I don't remember it specifically. And then Laura was talking about, well, how about this? How about that? And then and she says, how about that? How about that one, the flowers on the vase? I go, oh, Yeah. Yeah, what I kind of I think I kind of like that, and then I looked on my computer, and there's a little icon of the picture of it. So, uh, so I clicked it up and go, okay, no, that's really cool. Yeah, all right. Uh, and she was, yeah, I think we should do that one. So um, uh, we did. We chose that, and uh, the size of the book, by the way, is because we 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 had we wanted to use the whole painting, so it's a little wider than a book would ordinarily be. But I, I really like it. I think it's it's just it's stunning. And everybody who saw the cover, every single person, first word was wow. So I think it's unusual. And uh, with those two figures fighting at the bottom and yes. the other one, so I consider so I figure that's the war. And then the, and the third figure of the club are the people from the undercity, right? So metaphorically okay. it works well. And the cover with the flowers and everything, it seems like the riches of the overflowing of the, of the, of the metropolis and that Republic. That's so cool. That's so that's cool. I, yeah. I'm really pleased with that. Oh, very grateful. See why it's beautiful. And just as a note, I thought it was wider, but I just thought I was imagining things. So, so that's even no, funnier no, to know. No, no. I, asked, I asked my book designer, why is that? He goes, well, because we had to use the whole painting. And the back art, by the way, is from Joe Stutzinski, and it's from a computer game, I think, called The Order. Uh, and oh. uh, Sony was gracious enough to let us use the rights to it. Uh, and I wanted that, too. Uh, sort of, it's just, it's really different, but I think it works. And then the, and then the, and then the, the art that's on the case book right beneath the cover is also, those are uh, pictures that we found of an undercity. Uh, nice. So I think I like, I just like the whole thing. I mean, Fantagraphics publishing of it is just, is really fantastic. 
Oh, it's so, a it's a beautiful yeah. book. So uh, kudos. Please, please. thank you very much. Yeah, that's uh, so. I gotta so so. Let's take a look at something here. I mean, it's one of the things you touched on is you touched on the different characters and the fact that you're not outlining and so forth. So how do you decide? And you don't write these massive descriptions of your characters. So how do you decide? Like, I mean, you have um, Julia and uh, these different characters, uh, Julian and uh, these different characters. How do you? How did you? I mean, did you just? decided this is how they're going to be their attitudes or their, their focus as, I mean, literally as you're going along, or did you have kind of a picture in your mind about the, at least the main ones? Well, okay. This is a reality. I don't remember. I came up obviously with Julian and Freddie and Warren Rattlefinger and Avalyn in 2003 or 2002, whenever it was. And uh, I don't remember how I made them up, but reading the book, I realized that, well, I wanted, I wanted it, uh, Julian to be a college student from that period. So the period would correspond to us, uh, the t- turn of the last century or the teens, roughly in there. And incidentally, a lot of the quotes in the book, they, they have speak, they have these little aphoristic expressions and nearly all of them come from blue and gold 98, the Cal Berkeley yearbook. Okay. Oh, excellent. Being expansive. So I get the language of how they talk. So yeah, they're just Julian is a college student and he's not brilliant, but he's, he's thoughtful and introspective. And, uh, he has a, a, a very strong ethical and moral center. Freddie is very clever and is an alcoholic, you know, right. barely hanging on, but he's brilliant. Um, and then I wanted to uh, juxtapose, Julian with a beautiful young woman, Nina, who's feisty and uh, revolutionary, but she's also beleaguered by her little sister, uh, uh, Delia, uh, who's a little spitfire, right? And uh, <laughs> is hard to control. And we won't see any more about Delia because we don't want to give away the secret of her. But um, but it's, uh, so that's, yeah, Warren, Warren Rattlefinger. Uh, I guess I just had to have a sort of a wayward genius and his, and his beautiful, but, uh, inebriate girlfriend, Evelyn Haskins, you know, uh, after that, Marco, after that, the characters just sort of appeared. So for instance, Marco in that first scene, remember when, uh, when he says, you can't bring him in here, we have rules. And she says, if we had rules, Marco, you'd be wearing a dress. Okay. So I, I think when I first wrote it, that, was not Marco. I think I had a different name. And then once I brought Marco later on into the narrative, I remember, I remember doing this. I changed that. I made him Marco, that character. So, but we don't know anything about him. The characters evolve as the book goes on. And then I just added, added characters. So when I say I made it up, it wasn't even thoughtful. It just popped into my head. Everything popped into my head. If there's any idea about the muses influencing the whole book, was muse inspired things just whispered into my ear i never had a problem anywhere in the book it just all came to me and some of it was stunning like meeting uh all i say i'll say meeting priscilla okay she introduces i won't say her name besides priscilla but when she introduced herself to julian she introduced herself to me i typed her name i didn't know that's who it was I didn't know it. She's just some artist up there. And I never even made the connection back to um, the, her son, right, in the city. I didn't make any connection when I saw it. And then it was like a week later. I go, wait a second. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why that would make sense. So it just, yeah, I just, but I seriously, I just made everything up. I made it up the characters. And, but I wanted it to be, so no one mentions this, but it is a college novel, too. There's a lot of stuff about college life in there. Sure is. It's so much going on in the book. 
that you you kind of you kind of gloss over that. But there's a lot of college stuff in there. That's that's so cool to to know what you're thinking and what, what you're doing there. So and neat. And then, yes, there is a lot of college stuff. We, you know, I, one of the things I want to do is uh, I got to ask you this first before I ask you the next thing I was thinking about. Uh, who, who do you think is the right audience? Who, who is it that you're trying to, to, is there any one group or groups that you're thinking would be the right fit for you to read your novel or is that in play uh, into this? Okay. So I think uh, college audience uh, smart enough to understand the ideas about eugenics. Uh, maybe, maybe to appreciate the idea of war, but maybe that's for adults really to appreciate the war a- aspect of it. Um, I also think because a lot of stuff happens, people who want books with action, right? Things are happening all the time in this book. Um, in fact, my gardener and his wife and their four kids visited me in Hawaii here in uh, June, July, and their 16 year old daughter, Mia Natalia, Mia read the book in three weeks, 16 year old. So if I have any adult friends saying, well, I don't know, it seems like a long book. Really? Mia is 16 (laughs) years old and she read it in three weeks. And then Marcelo's wife, Asalia read it in two when another copy mysteriously arrived at my house here in Lanikai. And so I said, okay, now you can read it. So she was behind uh, Mia, but she actually read the whole book in six days and she finished it. She got up at five o'clock in the morning and the day they're about to leave to fly back to the mainland and finish the book. So, uh, uh, I don't, I don't brook any conversation about how the book's too complicated. If Mia can read it at 16 years old, anybody can read it. But that's a good question you asked. I would say it's like skyrockets going off in different directions. I think different people can read it, can appreciate it for different reasons. Maybe that's the best way to put it, for different reasons. That's but great. the college audience, I would say, I would say that's pretty fair because there's, there's college references, although it's different, different era. But I think, I think then you have a balance between uh, popular and literary. But I think literary people, the literary audience would appreciate because of the language, because of how it's written. And the ideas about eugenics. That's 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 awesome because it does feel like a book that would um, be read by many audiences, and uh, and you just named a whole bunch. And yeah, there's some pretty thoughtful stuff right there that you're talking about. If, um, but at the same time, like as I started reading it, I started going, I started thinking to myself of the age I was when I was in college, and so I was kind of reading it with that voice going through my head and those uh, those memories, and that was that was kind of a cool uh, thing though. But I, I. I I just love the fact that you have these different groups that really could find it, uh, um, their book. So I like my associate publisher, Eric Reynolds at, at, at Fanographics, um, uh, told me it's his opinion. It's, it's, it's many books. It's several books in one. He says, love story. He said, it's a mystery novel, right? What's going on with the Peter Jackson then what's going on with the children in the second half. Um, it's an adventure novel, right? Julian has a really, when you sit back and look, think about the book, he has a really long adventure. He yes, goes he to does. a lot of different places. Yes, he, he sees does. things that are incomprehensible. And uh, of course, it's a, it's a war novel. Uh, both my publisher, Gary Groth, and Eric said uh, the, the desolation part was their favorite part of the book, besides the undercity, which is very philosophical. Um, so, and he said, yeah, it's a philosophical novel too, but the discussion of eugenics, uh, very apropos. So I think that's also true. I think it's many books in one. And of course it's a love story, right? Between Julian and Nina right. and, 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 and more expansively between with Nina and her, and her sister Delia and Julian with his family and the whole story about uh, a society needing love to be the driving force in the world. I, I love that. I got, 
And you know, one of the things I got to say is, uh, you know, you use, um, you have lots of different, uh, um, well, you have these different characters and you have some different things going on. And one of the things, I want to pull some excerpts from your book for a minute. And so um, early in your book, one of the characters says this, but listen, Julian, people don't want to learn. They want to be told what's good and true. The council exists to tell them. I'm predicting that one day all our colleges will be closed and boarded up. Can you describe what is happening in the world that you've created so they can kind of get a feel for the big picture? Sure. Well, okay. So in the book, a hundred years before Julian enters this narrative, society, this society's republic, like it could be ours, sees rampant crime, sees uh, feeble-mindedness, sees sickness, the infirm, uh, and decides that uh, something has to be done about it. So um, there's a guy, a chemist, I guess, uh, Adolphus Vran, comes up with the idea that it, uh, he's been reading Francis, Francis J. Galton's work on eugenics, eugenics meaning well-born, and decides that's what has to happen. We need to separate these people from society so that we can go forward. And what they decide in the book is to, is well, they discover that there is a theoretical a virus named spiriosis in these people. And those who have it are prone to feeble-mindedness and, and sociopathy and, and all these and, and, and invalid uh, uh, diseases. So, uh, so they need to get rid of them. So they, so they empty three districts of the metropolis, a million people put them on trains and send them to the far East uh, where they hope they just die, right? They die in their own moment. So, um, what people are trying to decide, Nina and these people, is well, how can we save the society? What's wrong? We think they're just being lied to. It's an authoritarian society, but not like we know one. It's, there's no leader. There's the, the status imperium, very anonymous, five people you don't know. And then the, the judicial council, which what uh, Nina calls the Judas council, right? Betraying the, uh, the, the ideals of the republic. And, and how can this society be saved? How can it be saved when it's killing millions of people in an endless war? Another way to think about this book, by the way, is, is if Julian Bream were a college senior at Heidelberg University in 1943, right? So his, his, his nation is completely beset by, by the, the Nazis, and they're fighting a, a horrific war in the Soviet Union, which killed, as I think most people, well, most people don't know, it killed 25 million Soviets. 25 million died. Uh, so, so that's what this, and in this war, it's again, it's millions of people died in, have died in this war that's now been going on for 60 years. So does that answer the question? Um, yes, it does. Very much so. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. A, I appreciate it. That's, uh, you know, it, it, because what I kind of wanted you to do, which is what you did, is kind of give a background of this world. And, you know, like you said, it's kind of like an alternate universe type thing um, a little bit and uh, it could be what we want, but it's got a, you know, it's that uh, this is what's happening in that world that you've created, and I like that. It's it's eugenics. It's it's there's there are two. So in Francis J. Galton's world in England in the late nineteenth century, the idea was to mate the best people, to choose the best people, to have a society go forward with the best people, and and that was that was the ideal. Then eugenics came across the ocean to the United States, where we, in our own inimitable way, decided the best way forward was to get rid of the bad people. So in, there's a novel I read, a book I read at the time, um, uh, Edwin Black's uh, War Against the Weak, 
about eugenics. It's a really great book. And it, it gave me some ideas as I, as I conceived the book with eugenics, I read uh, fortuitously, I read this book and it was, well, I didn't read the whole thing, but I was skimming through it. I got a lot of ideas. It's just a great book. He, he, he wrote a tremendous book and, um, and, and Americans went for what I would call negative eugenics. You get rid, don't worry about improving the race, get rid of all the other people. And eugenics is more dangerous than, than genocide because in eugenics, you can target anybody. You ultimately target, as Mr. Sutro says, everybody you hate, okay, wow. becomes uh, 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 becomes ready to be disposed of, okay. So that's sort of the idea. And of course, eugenics reached its nadir at Auschwitz, and that sort of ended it because they could see what can happen. And actually, in Britain at the time of Francis J. Gall's uh, uh, discovery of eugenics or his idea about it, they did talk about lethal chambers. So that's why I use the term lethal chamber in the book. It's the, they did talk about it, and they talked about having uh, vast colonies, the unfit and the unwell. You know, get rid of them. Right. So um, that's really what the book is about. And it's funny because not really anybody asked me about the eugenics after the book. They didn't really talk about it. I don't really know why. Because it's a, my publisher said, well, it's kind of in the background. I go, Gary, it's not actually really in the background. It's, it's everywhere. Um, but they're used to it, right? It's just part of their – because right. eugenics – at the, in America at the turn of the last century and in Britain was taught in high schools and universities. It was supported by Winston Churchill, Margaret Sanger, wow. Henry Ford, many people. It, it was, it was, it was a uh, conventional wisdom that eugenics was, was real and necessary and important for the improvement of the race until it went South. Right. <laughs> That's right. It, it went bad. It's, it's, well, because like, you know, you know, some of your characters have discussions center centering in and around whether this is a good thing, thing or not you know and it, we're just, you know there, there's the council and all and so that's a that's also a big part of why i wanted you to kind of let us know the let people know what this this world is like because that's you know it is it's stuff they've become used to and that's a scary thing too <laughs> um exactly they uh so you know one of the things you use dialogue to help paint pictures and here's an example uh, julian this is also insane you and i need to re-examine what we're doing here i was actually in Join our little Draxler snipe hunt. It seems so diverting and clever, but this is something else entirely. People are getting killed. Could you talk about using words to create tension? Because you had to do an awesome job of it. Yeah, you make me want to keep uh, reading. I like how the I like how the characters talk. Uh, in in Crossing Eden, my thousand page uh, novel Jazz Age, I figured out a way to have people talk in period language by reading books from the period and then copying out expressions. So I have reams of notes. I have, it's the only book you can read that's not from that era that uses uh, uh, period language. You won't read any other historical novel that does. Well, maybe um, uh, Andersonville by McKinley Cantor. He does it. It's really amazing. So, so they just speak in kind of a different way, right? They use expressions uh, that I think, it, it creates the period and it's just kind of clever. I think it, it just kind of makes it move along. Um, and the dialogue then isn't boring. It's, it will feel new, fresh and sort of interesting. And it's kind of slangy now and then it's, and it's wisecracks now and then um, it's just, you know what it is, it's substituting a normal word for something else. Like you'll never hear me say it was nondescript. Okay. That's a really bad thing people do all the time. Or he ate dinner and washed it down with no, 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 no. Don't say that. <laughs> or he padded across the room. No, 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 no. I try to think because I read the literary writers, I try to think of different ways to say things, right? Make it interesting. Uh, I think Jack McManus says near the end of the book, something like there, there are too many pegs in this board. 
you know, to figure everything out. That's an unusual expression. Uh, I made it up, but because I became very fluent in how the people were talking, gotcha. but, but you wouldn't, uh, we might say, Oh, it's there, there, there are too many, there are too many details here. There are too many elements, but you wouldn't say there are too many pegs in this board, but that's just the way. So it gives you a feeling that the people are individual and they're not, it's not our world. And the idea incidentally of the book in terms of this is to remember Julian is writing this book to his world, not to ours. So when he says, about the Dome of Eternity. For those of you who have never been inside the Dome, I must tell you it is inexpressibly vast. So now he's not talking to us. We've never been inside the Dome of Eternity, right? right. But it's to his audience. So everything is, is uh, for them. And uh, so anyway, that's how I wrote it. But the dialogue, I, I thought I thought it has to be, and sometimes it's funny. I, I like some of the expressions. That's why I say, I read the book over, it makes me laugh. Some of the things they say, how they say it. It's how they say it. Yeah, you're right. It's how they say it that makes it interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, just as a side note, because you mentioned them earlier, I mean, one of the one of the sections that really, and without going into too much detail, because it's towards the end of the book, but the, you know, the, when the airships are showing up and the 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 description of the the characters seeing them come out of the barn or the the place where they are, it's just yeah. it, it's cool because you kind of feel the fascination that the character has for what this looks like, and you're feeling, I, I don't right. know, it's it, to me, it feels like I'm reading a picture, which sounds dumb, but. Uh, it, it does. I mean, it's, it's, no, but that's how I did it. I, I have it. I had the image in my mind, the snowfield, the barn, what the airship looked like. And so the trick then is describing it and, and using, um, uh, it's like when he says it looked like a Fulton sausage. Okay. And we know what is a Fulton sausage, right. but they know it. Okay. Right. And the readers would know. Right. But it looked like, but when I say a Fulton sausage, you can get the idea and then draped with lights like Christmas tree lights. Right. Now you can see it. Yes. And, and so, so it's just a way, it's a way of describing something and keeping the action moving forward. It, it's a description. Somebody told me years ago, uh, it's not, you don't describe things you evoke, you evoke images. So when writers will say the clouds look like battleships on the horizon, no, 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 no. They look like storm clouds. As soon as you say battleships, now they see battleships. Okay, they're supposed to see clouds. That's a mistake. Okay, that type of simile is a mistake. Okay, you can't write like that. And the really good writers never write like that. Nice. Uh, so, so good writers, yeah, you can see, you just it's being clever and interesting with language. That's cool. I, I love it. I, yeah, we're we're getting close to finishing up. Yeah, one of the things I got to ask you is there any hidden meaning here? Anything that you want the reader to think about? After they finish it and go, hey, wait a second, was Monty talking about this or that? Or did you have any hidden messages in there, or something you really want them to remember? Yeah, I think uh, I think the thing is to look at this and wonder how our society, how many degrees we would be from this society, because if it could happen in Germany in the thirties and forties, it could happen here. Um, and so it doesn't require an authoritarian leader. It just requires both the, a ruling council and then the population to accept these things as real. When you look at your population and you, if you name people as the other, they are the cause of everything wrong in your society. Then you're starting drifting toward the general idea of eugenics. And also I think what I want people to come away with is that that last line where, um, let's see, what does Julian say? Uh, yeah, it's where it's um, naming, naming, this, naming this little boy at the end, right? Um, 
for the, the victory of all peoples who refuse to deny that this life is solely concerned with love. That's what I would have people take away from, that, that this life is solely concerned with love. That's what the book is really about. That's perfect. Perfect. Um, Monty, this, is, this has been awesome talking with you. I got is If someone wanted to learn more about you and your novels, where would you send them? Um, well, they can Google me, but I have, a, but I have, a, let's see, I have a, uh, Monty Schultz author.com, which has stuff about crossing in and about my music. I write music, right? I've had a couple CDs. I'm trying to finish another one. Um, I quit writing fiction to do music for six years. And that's why I was away for so long. I got tired of singing for the computer writing fiction. Then I decided music costs too much. So I can <laughs> write, write, write music. I can write books. It doesn't cost me anything. Um, so, but I have, my music is there. Also seraphonium.com S E R A P H O N I U M. That's my music. And then, and then the metropolis, the book.com is a really good website. Have you, did you get a chance to look at it? Yes, I did. I like that. It's a really cool website. It's there really it cool. It has this whole slideshow of the whole book and whatever. And uh, about the characters, lists of all the, the details in the book. So those things are, are kind of good to look at. Awesome. Yeah, awesome stuff. And uh, I, I love that, uh, um, th- that website's really cool. Cause it has, has everything you describe and it's just a, it's a neat kind of like you're getting ready to watch a movie too. You know, it's like, so I, I love it. Yeah, we had, uh, so Laura Hannafin, who uh, found the cover, also found the rights to almost all those images in the nice. Explore the Book thing. It took four months to assemble that website. And then Amy Phillips, who designed the whole website, um, just did a beautiful job of the backgrounds and all the and those character sketches and everything. And then I had to go and redo the uh, little bios, all the characters, because I hadn't paid attention. I had to improve them. It's like, whoa, okay, now you got to fix that. Now you got to do more work yourself. So uh, anyway, um, that's... Uh, very, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I will I put like links in my show notes so people can find it easily, especially if, especially if they're on that mobile phone. They they pull that thing up. They're there. The the links will be active right there, so they can go <laughs> visit your websites, which is cool. Uh, I, I got uh, I got to ask you one one last question, and it, and it's just one of the questions I like to ask my guests. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life, and if so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Um, uh, three teachers. Okay, one of them was an old journalism teacher of mine, Geets Vincent, died a few years ago, and she was very supportive of my work all the time. And she was one of was a stickler for grammar. Okay, and then the two writers I, I mentioned there at the beginning uh, in, in the, my dedication, uh, Gerald Rosen was my undergraduate uh, sort of writing mentor. He's an author. He died right after this site of Jordan came out, although he did come to my book signing. Uh, he was very helpful. He was just encouraging. And then my the other one, uh, uh, writer Stephen Alabak from UC Santa Barbara, who's on my graduate committee. Uh, he just, he was a writer, a short story writer. We wrote completely differently, but his word for me was like, given what you're trying to write, not what I write, given what you're trying to write, this is how well you did it. So he was extremely supportive of me for all those years. And I'm eternally grateful. And I hope, I haven't talked to him in maybe three or four years, but I'm going to try to give him a copy of Metropolis. Um, he lives he lives near me in Santa Barbara. So I got to find him again and, uh, and, and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. That's so and, cool. And, and thank you for this interview. It was really great. Uh, I really appreciate how carefully you read the book, and it was a really fun. Thanks. Really fun appreciate it. This is this has been awesome, and I and I wish you well on this, Monty. I mean, I can't thank you enough for talking with me. And what a cool story! And it's neat to know all that stuff behind it, especially uh, how you're writing it and how you put it down and then came back and finished it because you, you know. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for talking with me and sharing with us Metropolis. It's a, an awesome story, and and they're gonna have links to where they can find it and all that good stuff, and uh, they need to go find it now. So, good things. 
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, mahalo nui loa. <laughs> hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcast by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.